2: Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining me. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast continues to gain recognition as a great resource for small business owners, sales professionals, and business leaders in general. And that is because of the guests who join me to have a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. You get to pick the things that you need, the things that make sense to you, and implement them in your business. Reach out to the guests uh, who uh, you would like to get more information from. And the whole goal is that you... Find what you need to be more successful, have greater results, and be happier with your business. Today, my guest is Mike Schmidtman. Mike has led information technology sales teams for over 20 years. He currently works with organizations across the U.S. on sales recruiting, new business development, and profit growth. For the past five years, Mike has facilitated peer groups for sales leaders in the IT industry. Members consistently outperform the industry in sales growth, profitability, and innovation. Mike produces the award-winning Transformer Webinar Series and writes frequently for IT publications on sales and automation topics. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mike.
0: Thank you, Diane.
2: I am very excited to have you here. Um, Before we uh, went on air, so to speak, we were talking about how important it is for salespeople to be able to um, be able to respond, and you said something about order takers and educators, and I'm wondering if you would share with us what you mean by that and and how we end up being order takers and educators and what we should be doing.
0: Well, thank you, Diane. Um, I really believe that most salespeople work at a very tiny fraction of their capability. And you can see that because you look at a sales organization and the difference between the top person, the middle person, and the bottom people uh, is enormous in the same market, selling the same services and products, uh, the same customer set. And yet the gap between the, the top people, the middle and the bottom is enormous. So why is it? that the top people so outperform the middle and lower people. And so one of the areas that I start with is is what are their fundamentals? What do they do? How do they say it? How persuasive are they? And we were talking in the beginning. I think if we really boil down the sales profession, it comes down to two things. One is, are you influencing your prospects thinking? Because if you're not influencing their thinking, if you're not, changing their perspective, all you're doing is taking an order. So you're an order taker. At the same time, we also need them to take action. And if all we do is talk about features, functions, capabilities, etc., cetera, we're educating and salespeople get people to take action. So the, the two fundamental things we do are influence perceptions and thinking and get people to take action. And those are both persuasive skills. So I know you wanted to talk about persuasion, and we're going to be doing some sessions later this year on persuasion. But that's really what, what both of these are about. How do we influence people to think differently about our product? Uh, how do we get them to take action? And those are using persuasive skill.
2: So this is great. I, I, I really like that because um, I, I totally agree with you. I think people get really comfortable with being able to talk about the features and benefits of the thing that they sell, and they think that's going to persuade somebody to buy. But what, you're, what I hear you saying is we have to be able to compel people to take action so that there, there's more to it than just talking about what's good about our, our product or service.
0: Well, Diane, let me add something to that, and you're you're exactly right. So we we need to motivate people to take action, but um, I started my sales career in what they call eat what you kill sales. Uh, Eat what you kill sales are no salary, no expenses, no benefits, no nothing. Uh, If you sell something, you eat, so that's why they call it eat what you kill, and I was 100% commission sales for three years in my early days, wow. and if I sold something during the week, I would get a paycheck on Friday, and if I did not sell anything that week, I would get no paycheck on Friday, so that's a great wow. motivator, but we had to convince people to take action and to convince them of our the value of our services, but what I found was that you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who say I don't want to be in sales because it's too pushy, yeah. and I actually agree with that. Um, I found the best salespeople are don't push at all; they pull. And so, what's the difference between pushing and pulling in sales? Pushing is talking. Pushing is. Perhaps you know prattling on, uh, talking about how wonderful you may be. I call it beating your chest on how wonderful you are, but that's pushing. Polling is asking questions. Polling is understanding customer needs. Polling is getting people to see the value of your services and getting them to want to take action. And so, uh, I was in, in in one call closed businesses for three years. And I quickly found I couldn't push people into anything. If I if I did somehow uh, browbeat them into buying, uh, as soon as I walked out the door, the sale would unravel. And I, that's not yeah. I'm not that way anyway. I, I don't like. I mean, I, I like people to want to take action. And so the best salespeople, in my opinion, make the offer so enticing, so irresistible, so relevant to what the customer wants to achieve that the customers want, they gladly take it. So that's, that's pulling. And those are persuasive skills as well. But um, I really believe that that the best salespeople pull and don't push.
2: Yeah, I, I so agree with you. And I think this is what you know, what you're saying is exactly why I find that small business owners really struggle with selling because they have this incorrect belief this misconception or misperception about what persuasion really is right so right they think they're supposed to be coercive pushy you know all of those things and no one wants to be that it's not comfortable
0: right that's true no um there's a you you're probably very familiar with the author neil rackham And he wrote a very influential book 30 years ago called Spin Selling, uh, still in print today. And I've met Neil Rackham a couple times. He's a fascinating guy. Um, But he had an interesting survey he did once of CEOs. And I think he asked over 10,000 CEOs. Uh, His question was very simple. How many salespeople do you meet who are so valuable You would be willing to pay for their time and expertise. And the second question was How many salespeople do you meet who are such a waste of time, they should pay you for the time they've wasted? And the answer is so the the question is, in fact, you can Google this. It's a very famous question that he asked Would you be willing to pay for your salesperson's expertise? And the sad answer was that decision makers, Diane said, Fewer than 5% of salespeople are so knowledgeable, we would be willing to pay for their expertise. And the vast majority of them said, they're such gas bags and such a waste of time, they should be paying me. And so when we try to get appointments, and it's hard to get an appointment, and we try to get people on the telephone, and it's hard to get on the telephone, well, why? They're so used to salespeople not knowing anything, not having value, not caring blabbing, talking, um, that they say they're a waste of time. And that's the issue. Yeah. That's the, the barrier we have to overcome uh, if we want to get appointments with these people. Wow. The forest have poisoned the well, you might say.
2: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I know. It, it, it's really unfortunate. So what are simple things someone can do to be more persuasive
0: right well first of all i think i think all great salespeople are naturally persuasive and so you are already diane in the conversations we've had first of all you're a great listener because when we're going to persuade somebody it's like them giving us the answers to the test Um, if we listen well enough we find out what they care about what they want what they're hoping to achieve we can find out kind of what kind of budgetary uh, flexibility they have we can find out uh, we can find out all sorts of things if we just ask the questions and so persuasive people tend to be very observant they tie things back to what customers care about and uh, so it's a very personal sale and I think, it, especially in terms of objections, is let's talk about that for a second. That's a big issue for salespeople. And so when, the, when I interview potential salespeople for jobs, um, or if I'm doing an assessment of a sales team, I'll ask them just a very simple question. Um, somebody says your price is too high, how do you respond? Now you would think, Diane, that since salespeople hear this dozens of times, probably a week, a month, uh, hundreds of times a year, that they would have a well-crafted, well-executed, well-thought-out answer, but they don't. Um, So the answers fall into two categories. One type of answer is what I would say, well, we're higher, but we're worth it. Well, that, that may be true, but it's not persuasive because you haven't explained why a customer should care if you're more money, and you may be worth it, but not to me. <laughs> so it's not—it's maybe a true answer, but it's not persuasive. The second, so I, I call that the value um, response. Then you have about half of people will do what I call the horse trading or bargaining response, which is, "Well, how much is too high? If I can get my manager to approve it, would you take action?" So that's the the bartering, horse trading answer, and and. What's interesting about that question to me is, uh, both answers have their place. In other words, if you always answer in the value way, that's wrong some of the time. So imagine yeah. for a minute, you go to a car dealership and you identify a car that you like, and it is the model you like, it has the accessories you want, it's got the color, etc. cetera, and the price seems pretty reasonable. Salesperson person comes out, says, can I help you? And what do you say? Do you say, oh yeah, this is a great car. I just love it. It's so perfect for me. And the price is so reasonable. Is that what you say? No. 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 <laughs> so we're wired, even though that's what we think, that's not what we say. Uh, so we're wired in some way to treat salespeople in a disingenuous way. So we'll say, well, I don't really think I like it. I think I can get a better price down the street, or I'm not sure if I want to buy something. We're essentially not telling the truth to the salesperson. We're treating them like a salesperson. uh, So they're not answering that in in any valid, real way. The, The problem is, if as a salesperson, you answer that with a value objection and a response, you say, but we're it's you know, a better car, it's got a better resale value, it's got great mileage, it has great consumer reports. That's not a relevant response because those people are bargaining with you. And if you give a value answer to a bargaining question, they don't hear you, they don't care what the mileage is, they don't care what the yeah. resale value is. They're, just trying, they're trying to walk off the lot with a gallon of blood in the gas tank, which is yours. So, that's a bar- yeah. so there is, there's a time and place for bargaining When people are treating you like a salesperson, you you have to, you don't have any choice. That's a bargaining answer. On the other hand, there are many times in sales when people legitimately have questions about your value. So for example, I'm in the uh, voice communications business and very frequently we would get an answer, something like this. You say, well, look, we like your solution, Mike. Uh, Price seems reasonable, but it seems like I can get the same thing from another competitor for about 10% less. And it seems to do the same thing. Now, that's not really a bargaining response. Those people have legitimate questions about why you're higher. And if you don't have a good value answer, then you're going to lose the sale as well. So what what I'm saying, Diane, is there's really two ways to answer a price objection. One is a value answer. One is a bargaining answer. And neither one is correct all the time. So the best salespeople, and I'm sure you do this, when somebody says, well, your price is too high, the best salespeople before they respond will ask probing questions to understand, is this person bargaining with me or do they really just not understand why we're worth it? So you might say, can you clarify that for me? Can you elaborate? Can you explain? And then they're going to break. You're going to figure out: Are they bargaining with you, or they just don't understand your Does that make sense?
2: Totally, it totally makes sense to me, and I really, really appreciate that because something that you've said a couple of times that I that I want to pick up on and and maybe you know drive home a little bit more is that you have to be talking with your prospect in a way that is relevant to them, mm-hmm. because if you don't, they don't hear you and you know too many times salespeople have their script they talk about the stuff that they think matters they talk about their you know what they've been programmed for but it's totally disconnected from what the other person is telling you or would tell you if you were asking them questions that's true Hmm. yeah
0: what do they call that you show up and throw up Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, oddly, I just had that experience this morning with the Better Business Bureau. Oh no! And and I I, I it's it's so horrifying. And I wrote a blog post about it that I'm going to post later today because um, <laughs> th- this guy they, this guy's called several times and left messages. So he's very persistent. I called him back, and his start was. Uh, so I have good news for you. You're yeah. eligible for Better Business Bureau accreditation. Are you familiar with that program? Yes, I am. Are you, so you're familiar with it? Yes. So he says, okay, I just need to ask you some questions. Oh, and and actually the message you left was for the owner or president. So not mm. even by name. Mm-hmm. So I already knew I was in trouble. And I think I probably called him back as a experiment, you know, so <laughs> just to see what he was going to do. So then he starts asking me questions that he should have already known the answers to. If I'm eligible for accreditation, that tells me you've done your research on me and my company, and you know, the answers to these questions, you should not be asking them of me. And then immediately goes into the spiel about just assuming that this is a value to me. And I, I I let him go to a certain point and I stopped him and I said, you know, I, I don't, think this is something that's valuable for my business really why not because for 13 years I've been doing a pretty good job of providing value so people know me they trust me I have a good reputation out there I don't see how the better business bureau accreditation is going to improve on that no response well the response was okay well you know if you change your mind we're here and I just thought boy you know you you just like hit on every wrong thing
0: right there was no
2: persuasion in there at all because there was no conversation
0: right well that's that's the shame about our profession Diane and that's what you and I struggle with all the time when we when we're at a cocktail party and we say we're in the sales profession then people say they glance at their oh well nice talking to you, <laughs> you know, it's not exactly <laughs> the noblest profession and yet it can be, uh, and that's I, I I fight with that all the time. And so, to kind of pick up, when I was in this kind of one call close business, years ago, um, I, I saw many people who were incredibly gifted at what you might call manipulation, <laughs> and I found that the world kind of has a way of people paying people back like that and uh i was one of those people myself for years and and uh, i learned some hard lessons and i lost all my money uh, a couple times and uh, those are the best educations i ever had because i really believe that there is karma (laughs) i believe you have your customers interests at heart and want what's genuinely best for them and you're only acting ethically in their behalf, That I think the world treats you that way. And I became almost militant about being truthful and working in customer interests. I just made that decision. I would never advocate something that I didn't think would help a customer's business. I remember one time when I was a sales manager and I had a salesperson, we're out on a, on a call, and he launched into, he says, well, I'm within a com, and we're a two, we're a $4 billion company. And I interrupted him on the spot and I said, Jeff, we're not a 4 billion, we're 2.2 billion. And he looked at me and says, okay, yeah, we're 2.2 billion. He, he goes off. When we're out of the call, he says, Mike, you embarrassed me in front of the customer. And I said, Jeff, um, there's no customer in the world that would buy from a $4 billion company that wouldn't buy from a $2.2 billion company. So, So the lie bought you nothing, <laughs> but if that customer did any research at all and saw that you yeah. we were two and we not four, they would say that you exaggerate about things. You've lost your credibility. You can't ever do that, and that was a tough yeah. lesson for him, and he's gone on to become an incredibly successful salesperson. He, he actually earns over a million dollars a year in sales, but, wow. I, but I, I, I love working with salespeople like that who will learn and listen, but I do believe uh, so getting back to your point, this gentleman who spoke to you from the Better Business Bureau, he didn't have your interests at heart. He'd done no research on no. you. He right. didn't care about, he was talking at you, not with you. And those are the yeah. people that that are a poor reflection on our profession, if I may say so. But I, I, I like to think that the best people in our profession provide solutions to customers that enable their business to be more successful, they communicate better, they, they're more effective, uh, they they reduce expenses, they serve customers. I used to work all the time with, with call center solutions that would help them provide better customer service, lower wait times, more knowledgeable operators being routed to the right people. So if people do their business correctly, they're serving, and it's a very noble, honorable, and so people like yourself, Diane, and Myself, if we're kind of on this mission to raise the the professionalism of the of what we do, that's how we do it, person by person. Um, anyway, <laughs> I guess I'm sermonizing. Yeah, yeah. It's
2: okay. okay. I, I am so where you are, and and believe me, I completely agree with you. It's part of the reason why uh, you do what you do, I do what I do. Why I do this podcast, I, I'm completely with you. It, it's it's like Evangelizing for there's a good way of doing this, and a bad way of doing this, and please do it the good way. It's best for everybody when right. w- when you're when you're when you have integrity and honesty and um and and you have the other person's interest in mind. You're absolutely right. This guy w- with with the BBB, he had his interest in mind. He right. wanted to to buy this thing that that as far as I can <laughs> tell, really holds no value for me. Right. So, and the problem is people don't realize that they telegraph that kind of thing. Right. So, (laughs) yeah.
0: Um, When, um, I'm I'm certainly a student of this profession. I probably have several hundred uh, sales books and management books and business books and they're writing them faster than I can read, so I think I'm losing ground. But I'm fascinated, and you know, kind of getting into the persuasion topic, which is what we're talking about. I'm very interested in the science of persuasion and how we make decisions and how how we choose things. And of course, the more you look into it, Diane, the more you realize we're really not. You know, a lot of our decisions are made at a very subconscious level, and we're not even aware of why we do things the way we do. I'll give you a real quick example. When you look at, at, and by the way, once you open your eyes to this, you see manipulation everywhere. (laughs) So (laughs) supermarkets, retail stores, websites are just ridden with um, manipulative tactics designed to get you to click on this, uh, to spend time there, uh, to... By this supersized here, it's just it's manipulation, once you kind of see what they're doing, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing it's everywhere. Uh, but I'll give you a quick example that I, I thought was interesting. and this is called anchoring. Anchoring is how do we perceive what price is fair and what's not fair? And we think this is a rational process. and so that's why we get three bids, that's why we do price side-by-side comparisons. Of course, customers are looking to do side-by-side comparisons too. We all do it, right? So we get an airline ticket, we put three airlines side-by-side. If we get a hotel, if we get a rental car, uh, if we buy a pair of socks, if we buy a book, we compare. Um, but what we don't understand is is how easily influenced we can be. I'll give you an example. Let's say you walk into a supermarket and on some level, you're you're going down the aisle and you see rows of Campbell's soup. And Campbell's has a big sign that says uh, 10% off. Now they've actually studied this behavior. If Campbell says that our soup is 10% off today, you will buy an average of three cans of soup. Now if Campbell's makes one change to that sign, if they say, Uh, Campbell's soup, 10% off, limit 12. The only thing different is they put 12 on there. Your new anchor is now 12 and you will buy on average seven cans of soup. So they've actually doubled how much you buy by limiting it. And that's completely subconscious. In fact, um, I don't want to give away my secrets, but I I do this in live presentations as I have, I manipulate people all over the place. I have them, estimate numbers and heights of buildings and uh, <laughs> all sorts of things. And I can manipulate them high or low uh, just by the way I freeze the question. And uh, a, a second, so, so in other words, that's called anchoring. And when, when we're pricing our offers, it's so important to get customers anchored on a certain price. And so our price seems very reasonable in comparison. And there's a real art and science to anchoring and how you set that up and how you do it. So for example, so let's say I'm selling a consulting contract to somebody. Um, the first number out of my mouth is going to be a very high number, even if it doesn't have to do with the price of my services. So if, if you're doing the same thing, Diane, what you might do is to say, hmm, i I I'll give you an example. I did this with a, a telecom vendor out in the West Coast. And I was talking to a guy and he said, well, Mike, we have a problem with sales turnover." I said, okay, um, how many salespeople do you have? He says, I have 175. I said, oh, great. I said, what's your sales turnover? He said, 175. I said, <laughs> <laughs> you, you lose 100% of your salespeople every year? He says, well, not everybody quits, but he says some people you know, last six months and so on average, we're, we're replacing our sales force every 12 months. I said, well, yeah, you really have a problem. And so, <laughs> He wanted to get a a training class done where I would show their managers how to hire better salespeople. He says, we're not hiring good enough salespeople. And that class might've been a couple thousand bucks or so, but um, um, instead what I did was I said, okay, so let, let me estimate for a minute how much this is running you. And I said, so you've got X amount to pay for each new hire. And then you've got ramp up time and you've got benefits and you've got guarantees and you've got draws and you've got this, that, and the other. And by the time we were done, he had added himself up to a 3 or $4 million a year problem. So what was the anchor? The anchor wasn't, can you do this class for a couple thousand bucks? The anchor was, I've got a 3 or $4 million problem. That's right. what went in. With, so that's an ethical way to do it. Matter of fact, I'm helping him understand the magnitude of the problem. But but anchoring yeah. is one of the key takeaways that salespeople need to do. So before you deliver your price, you need to get customers to understand the scope of the problems that they're facing right now. What's the turnover? What's the lost customers? What's the value? What's the long-term value of every lost customer? What's the opportunity of not winning this sale and getting them to estimate that? that's when you put your proposal in as a percentage of the problem that they've identified. It's a fraction. So that's anchoring. And anchoring really works. It's it's amazing. So any thoughts or questions on that?
2: Actually, no, I I love it. And as you were talking about it, I was thinking about um, proposals that I've done and conversations that I've had with clients where just asking them a simple question like, What, what, what is the cost of not renting out that piece of equipment? And they just look at you and go, wow, I never thought of it that way. It's like, right. Yeah, exactly. But but we need to. Yeah. So, so it's such an interesting, um, I totally get it. I totally get it. I love that. I didn't realize that's what it was called.
0: There's anchoring, which is to say, get them to understand the magnitude, not, and not just now, but over a period of time, uh, three or four years, what's the magnitude? problem and so then your solution um is going to be a fraction of what the total is now here's right. another one real quick in persuasion and salespeople make this mistake all the time um this is a concept they call less is more uh they actually the, the scientists have said so what less is more means how many times have you had a proposal they found that um that customers have in their mind, kind of what they want in a proposal. And everything you add to that proposal that is not something they want or something they need soon detracts from your proposal. So for example, yeah. had a, it, I show this as an illustration of Dishware, they put it on eBay. So let's say you've got uh, eight plates, eight bowls, eight, you know, um, uh, like dishes. So so 24 total pieces, and how much would people pay? And let's say it's 30 bucks. And then in addition to the eight pieces, uh, three each of eight bowls, saucers, whatever, uh, now if you add some other things that people don't want, you would think that would be worth more than the smaller number, but it's not. Uh, Because anything that people add that you don't want detracts from your proposal. It's, it's, when you see what people will pay on eBay, uh, they'll actually pay more for fewer pieces. Interesting. So why is that? And so here, here's how this works with, with your sales proposals. Everything you put in your proposal that the customer doesn't want or need detracts from the total value. So I saw this happen one time when I was working oh. on a telephone system and the guy says, well, we've already got a voicemail system. We don't need to swap that out. We're just going to keep our voicemail. We're, we're talking about swapping the phone system. The guy says, well, yeah, but, you know, our, ours includes a voicemail and it does this and it does this and it does this and it does this. And the guy said, no, you know, he didn't want it. And by adding something in that he didn't want, he made the whole price seem overpriced because he thought he was buying right. need. So my point is when you're proposing the only thing you proposed, it, it, I, well, I'll give you another example. When I used to sell. wait, wait,
2: wait, 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 wait. wait. But before you do, I got to take a sponsor break. And, and okay. then I want to hear that. So hang on one second. Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our link, which is Audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on Audible.com are Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back by David Averin and Leading Loyalty by Lena Renee. So visit Audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, explore the books that are of interest to you and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today, we're speaking with Mike Schmidtman about how to be more persuasive in sales. Okay, before we went to the sponsor break, you were about to give me another example of um, I will,
0: but I have to affirm your Audible sponsor. I'm a huge fan of Audible. I I get one of their books every month. I'm I'm always, I've got a wish list of about 15 books that I'm, (laughs) uh, and I listen to them all the time. I'm a huge Audible fan. Right on. Yay! Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I want—I I want to talk about the issue of less is more. That you yeah. only want to put in your proposal exactly what the you want the customer to think. This product offer service was custom built just for me. Yeah. So an example, um, I used to sell uh, telephone systems, and I was an Avaya reseller, and at the time, our phone systems had 360 features and a new competitor came out, which was Cisco and Cisco in their first version was pretty underpowered. It was their first product on the market. They only had 60 features. And we would go into customers and say, well, Cisco only has 60 features and we have 360. And what do the customers say? We only need 60. And so I quickly learned I was hurting my chances because they thought, well, this is a bias to have all the stuff that we don't need or don't want. We're paying too much. So less is more. So when you give a proposal, and this why you're listening, Diane, is so important. As you listen to what customers want, you feed back to them only the issues, yes. the careabouts that they have. And that proposal looks like it was custom built just for them.
2: Yes. Gosh, I'm so glad that you said that. It, it is so critically important. And, and salespeople have got to embrace this idea that if you, fo- if you really listen and you focus on what the person is telling you, and then later you are continuing to relationship build with them, you're not just you know, killing your dinner and moving on down the savannah to find the next one, you will have more opportunities to sell more things to that client, but if you try and tell them everything you do, or try and put everything into your proposal, A, they're not listening to you, and B, I I think part of what you're doing is you're telling them that you didn't really hear them, and people want to be heard. They they want to think that you are responding directly to what it is they're telling you, so you should.
0: Yep, very true.
2: I have a question for you. Yes. Who are the easiest people to influence?
0: Salespeople.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Why? <laughs> <so> salespeople <laughs>
0: have the fanciest cars. They spend money on clothes. They have oh. the, the shiniest new. Uh, they always have the new Appleware. They have the newest TVs. Salespeople, uh, I don't know why we're wired that way, Diane, but I bet we're, and I'm not sure there are exceptions to this, but most salespeople I know are, in fact, um, uh, we, we probably both know a lot of people who who actually sell services to the sales community. And what's considered <laughs> the, the greatest selling ground of all places, people who are pulling their wallets out, throwing money at you, are the multi-level marketing conventions. If you can go to a multi-level marketing convention and talk about that and then do a back-of-the-room sale, those people, it's like gold. Ah. <laughs> so sales people are the <laughs> easiest people to sell because we're – One, because we influence other people, we're easily influenced ourselves. We're just susceptible to that. And we want things, we're striving. And so I I don't see that as a bad thing, but how many salespeople have, I remember my first job in sales, um, I was hired before I walked in the door. It was a linear office in Southern Florida. And I walked in, before I even walked in the door, I saw um, Corvette, uh, 300ZX, BMW, Jaguar. I said, okay, I'm here. Uh, This is where I wanna work. (laughs) I hadn't even walked in the front door. I just looked in the parking lot. I said, "This is where I want
2: to be." <laughs> That's so great! Oh my! All right, now I want to ask you the flip side of that question: Who are the hardest people in influence?
0: Um, well, for salespeople, it's usually engineers. Um, uh, but that, that, that doesn't so need sense. to be the case. It, it, it's only because salespeople tend to not know the products that well and to use general out. But 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 engineers. Are obviously logical thinkers Now, I happen to love engineers because yeah. i 'm wired that way to matter of fact, my mother was in real estate, so she was sales and my dad was a civil engineer, so so i 've got both sides of my brain <laughs> and I can speak sales fees <laughs> to engineers and I can speak engineer ease to salespeople but uh, uh, but engineers and, and i and, or you might say cFOs as well a lot of salespeople yeah. have trouble putting things. To CFOs, because CFOs want to have evidence and they want to have, you can't just say, well, hey, you'll triple your money in six months. Okay, where, how, how do I know this is correct? What's my downside? What's my risk? What's the chances? What's going to happen if this doesn't work? Those are reasonable business questions. Yeah. And salespeople sometimes never get deep enough to answer that. But that, now that doesn't mean they're harder to sell to. You just have to sell to them using the way that they consume information, which is, uh, and I often make a metaphor of Warren Buffett. So I'll say, well, what do you have to get for a return? Well, we have got to double it in six months. I say, okay, realistically, the the richest, one of the richest people in the world is Warren Buffett. And his average return is about 14% a year. So 14%. That's good enough for Warren Buffett. No, if you want to have a hundred percent return in six months, then you're, you're better than Warren Buffett. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not the case, but, but, but when I speak to a CFO, I don't say I'm going to double your profits in six months because that's not true. It just isn't. Um, So you have to couch it with a CFO or an engineer. You have to use real numbers. You have to stress test it. You have to understate, not overstate. You have to uh, acknowledge that there's risk involved and, and build that into your, but if you do that, they're, they're business people. And that's what Warren Buffett does. If, if you give Warren Buffett two investments, one costs less and one has a higher return. What does Warren Buffett invest in? He invests in the one that has the better return. So if we can show you, yes, this is more, but if this has a better return, could you be like Warren Buffett and, 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 move ahead with this. So if it's couched correctly, they're the, they're very good buyers, but most salespeople, that's, this too oh much work. <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> How sad. Um, so what um, is there, this may sound like a strange question, but I, I, I keep toggling back and forth between, persuasion and manipulation, and they're right. different things. I'm wondering if there is an easy way for like, a salesperson to know which one they're engaging in, like so they could sap themselves if they were engaging in manipulation. Do you think that's yeah, possible? Well,
0: yeah, that's an interesting question, Diane. Um, I would, you know, my, my answer is always grounded in what's best for the customer. And yeah. if, you've the right, if you've earned the right to understand the customer needs, if you understand your solutions and understand what they can do for a customer, and if you're acting ethically in their best interest, then then, then uh, I don't think that's manipulation. I think you're, you're using, I mean, yeah. everybody influences, I mean, attorneys influence juries, uh, doctors influence their patients in, into a course of action. Um, you know Daniel Pink wrote a book uh, about how everyone 's in sales everyone if you 're on the school board you 're influencing people and in what the curriculum's going to be if you're um, uh, any, if you 're a banker uh, you 're influencing people on their investments that they 're going to make and the different you know, perhaps financial vehicles that you have available to you. you want new clients so they I mean, everybody 's in sales and so i don 't regard that as manipulation. If it's like, it's like saying if, if, if I'm a fitness instructor um, or personal trainer and I get people to work out more and to eat better and more healthily, am I manipulating them or am I doing something in their interest? And so I, I think we're fitness trainer that we're getting people in shape. And on average, I mean, I'm in the technology field and technology usually speeds work up, it helps you do more work faster, it enables you to serve your customers better, so I'm 100% on board with my solutions if they're properly implemented for the right reasons. But I don't think that's manipulation. I'm the personal trainer, what do I, and and so yes, personal trainers will sometimes get you, they'll resort to (laughs) some some tricks of the trade, I'm sure to get people to show up and to work out and to eat right, Um, but if it's for the right reasons, I think they're serving a greater good. So, what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm curious because you you actually touch more people in the sales world than I do. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I, I think you're right, and I think that is such a good point that it, that if your driving principle is uh, what is best for my prospect, then then it's hard to go wrong. And I, for me, I keep coming back to you have to build trust that people have to people buy from people they trust there. So our job is to be that person. And in order to be someone who's trustworthy, you have to be ethical, you have to have integrity, you have to be interested in the other person, you have to um, explain, if indeed, your product or service can help the other person, you have to be able to connect those dots. So I, I think sometimes people think that they, they sort of assume that they're trusted before they are. Right. Either because well, well, their brand has recognition or something, and so they sort of jump over those steps.
0: Well, I agree with you. Um, what's that, that famous saying? Who you are speaks so loudly I can't hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I think who you are, uh, but I'll, I'll leave you with one quick story, which turned out to be the biggest sale that I was ever involved in. Uh, but it, But early on, as often happens, there were moments of truth. And I remember one time, and the customer was the consulting firm of Booz Allen Hamilton. And they came to me one time and they sent me a PO. And they said, okay, Mike, we'd like to order another you know, system from you. And I believe the, the PO was about $80,000 or something like that. And in the meantime, the company I represented had come out with a newer line it was significantly less money and more. As in technology, what happens is, you know, you get more for less every year, right? Yeah. Uh, that's what happens with your iPhone and computer, everything else. It's more powerful and costs less money. So I go back to Booz Allen Hamilton and um, I said, look, um, I certainly can do this, but I, I need to make you aware that there is a product for half the money uh, that's actually more powerful and is probably better suited for you. And what did they say? Well, you're in sales, we don't believe you. And they assumed, uh, since I was in sales, that I was trying to manipulate them probably to make a quota or make a trip or something. And that's a, a very reasonable response. And so I said, well, first of all, it's always your choice. Uh, I'm gonna right. serve whatever you want to do, but, I, but I, I will do this, I'm gonna bring in an engineer in uh, who's in product development, and you can ask him those questions and then you make the determination. And so I, I brought a guy in and they, you know, interrogated him for quite a bit of time and it did turn out that um, uh, the $40,000 product was not only cheaper, but it was better for them. And so they went ahead with it. But I think that was kind of a defining moment in our relationship because I had that hand. I could have done it. I could have made a lot more money, but I want to do what was right for the customer. And you don't have to do that too many times before customers recognized, this guy's pulling for us, if, if that makes sense. Yeah,
2: Yep. Oh, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. When, when I was selling copiers, which is probably one of the worst professions on the planet. Um, I, I had a client who called me and said, I need a color copier. And I said, no, you don't. And believe me, I had my sales manager breathing down my neck saying, sell that color cause they were so much more expensive. And, and I just thought you do not need this thing. And so, we sat down, we went over it. I said, okay, explain to me what you're going to be doing with it, on and on. And it turns out she did need one. But I, I, you know, and I could have said, okay, whatever, and and just gone with it. But my goal was to make sure she had the equipment that she really needed. And color printers were much less expensive then. And Mm -hmm. because I knew that I had to live with me. And so Right. And so then you get a reputation for, okay, well, that, you know, Diane's going to shoot you straight. Just call her. She'll tell you whether she's got something for you or not. That I think is worth so much more when it comes to, yeah. you know, growing a sales practice and and sustainably and being able to be successful than anything else. But it's having right. their best interest in mind. Like you said, that's got to be the driving force.
0: Right. Well, I think if you have that attitude, Diane, in the long run, there may be individual sales where you make less money or even lose a sale because of that. But I think in the long run, you can look yourself in the mirror more easily and um, you have longer term customers and you have those raging advocates of people who say, "Look, I'm going to work with Diane because I know. Yeah. And that's when you get the referrals, too. And, uh,
2: exactly. So. Right. That is, it is exactly so. Yeah, it just makes all the difference. Okay, so I so appreciate th- this conversation probably because you and I are on the same page. Right. <laughs> so it's like, you know, talking to uh, another cheerleader. Um but but if if someone's listening to this and they, you know, want to learn more about, you know, this is how they should be doing things, are there resources that you recommend that they
0: I do. Well, the, the easiest way, Diane, is actually just I'm in LinkedIn, and there are not many, too many people in this world named Mike Schmidtman, so <laughs> you don't have to sort through <laughs> pages after page of people with my name. That's the easiest way. Um, I've got a website, MikeSchmittman.com. Um, having said that, you know, like yourself, um, I just believe in in giving whatever thoughts and ideas and practices I know that help us be better uh, so I do have a uh, an occasional email newsletter I send out probably six, seven times a year. And if somebody just wants to ping me and give me their name, I'll put you on it. But the same thing. How do we do better? How can we be more successful? How do we um, – all the things that they, kind of interesting issues uh, that – that salespeople encounter. uh, How can we do this better? How can we be more successful? And I'm, I'm just a student of the industry and i love to see successful people and people who practice it the right way for the right reasons. So
2: me too. Me too. (laughs) I am totally with you. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Mike, thank you so much for sharing this information and spending this time with me. I so appreciate it. Uh, And listeners, uh, you know, i like to thank you, too. You're the reason we are here doing this, as I uh, would also like to thank our sponsor. If you would like to get a free trial of Audible.com, as well as a free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth to sign up. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day.